Um, again, just a reminder, like I said earlier, if you've got the app, you can be tracking with us. All these things kicking off for the new year. Our connect groups are going to be firing up soon. The leaders are all kind of getting their planning together. Um, again, connect groups are a way for you to get kind of plugged in. Um, it's based off the Sunday morning service. So if you're a note taker like me, follow along in the, in the app. And then uh, generally we'll post a couple of questions and we get together with a group of people from the church and we share, we talk about the things that God is speaking to us individually, corporately, and, uh, and we grow together because we need each other. Amen? Amen? All right. So, hey, we are jumping into the new year. This is the first Sunday of 2024. So I can officially say, Happy New Year, right? Last Sunday, we kind of took a pause on 1 Thessalonians, and I told you that um, starting, you know, last Sunday and then moving into this Sunday, we're going to be kind of peering into, peeking into what would be like a prophecy update, if you will. That's been our kind of MO for many years as Calvary Chapel, and last week, we kind of started with this idea like the book of Joshua, like standing right on the edge of the promise. Joshua chapter 1, they haven't walked in yet. And they're getting that last exhortation, thinking about stepping into the place of fulfillment and just the idea that God's the God of second chances, that it can be overwhelming stepping into these new seasons that God is leading us to and just exhorting, encouraging. And I think the same thing looking ahead to 2024, maybe some of us feel like God is taking us into some new places, new seasons, Lord willing, even greater um, fulfillment into the things that God is wanting to do. Uh, we are going to start this week um, on kind of step one of, of a multi-part uh, serv- uh, series um, on what would be a prophecy update. Uh, I love that this is kind of a part of our DNA in Calvary Chapel is uh, being able to look at this promise of Jesus's return and be asking the question, how close are we getting? What are some of the signs of the times, et cetera? But I do feel like even for myself in doing these for a number of years, that one of the things that we often tend to do is we just kind of zero in on maybe a couple of the events and things that are maybe happening, you know, throughout the, the world at any given moment. And one of the things that I felt like the Lord was challenging me that I think was important for us as a church. Again, one of the reasons I even got into the book of First Thessalonians is there are some Anchors. There are some practical things that we need to know as the church when it comes to even this idea of eschatology, the study of end times. So uh, Karis was home for a couple of weeks, just dropped her back off last night to LAX. She's, you know, back on uh, back on site in Maryland. And as she was coming in, just always get a download for like, hey, what'd you do this semester? And one of the things, obviously, with the Navy that they're learning uh, is this idea of what, what you and I would call celestial navigation. You're like, what is that? You know, it would be what we did for hundreds of years before we had GPS, right? Like you got to figure out where the fixed points are in the sky, your your North Star, Venus, etc. Like you pick those objects that you can see that are consistent, and then you can start to calculate or navigate based on your positioning. If you have the right instruments, like a sextant, right? Like would take a fixed point and you could start to calculate, like, okay, how far, you know, on course or off course. And I feel like when we get into the topic of eschatology. One of the things that's important for me to do for you and us as a church, what are those fixed points so that when we begin to navigate 
the waters of prophecy. When we begin to navigate the things that are going on in the world around us, we can start to figure out like, okay, which direction, you know, are we headed? What are those key things that we should know as the church that Jesus, that scripture, you know, has made clear for us? And so the idea of eschatology itself, it's just a big word that we use in theological terms that really just means end times, last days. And these comes from Jesus's teachings himself. And when I teach through the book of Revelation, when I'm teaching eschatology and theology classes, and so today you guys can kind of put your theology professor hat along with me as we dig into God's word, because one of the things that, uh, that I feel like is a, is a principle is you don't, we have to de delineate between what we do know and what we think we know. There are things that the Bible makes really, really clear. These are those fixed points that I was talking about, our North Star, if you will. And then there are other areas that even within denominations and other believers, we might say, hey, we believe that the Bible says those things are going to happen, but maybe we're like, we're going to have a discussion about the timeline, like which is the order of events, right? Like PEMDAS, right? Like, okay, which is the order of operation? What goes first? And so I understand that although people might agree on some fixed points, maybe they have some, some conversation about where and how some of these things are going to unfold. All right, so there's what we do know. And then there's what we think we know. And one of the things that I always try to tell believers, don't let what you don't know get in the way of what you do know. Okay? Because a lot of people get really overwhelmed sometimes thinking about this. And they're like, it's too confusing. So I'm just going to like, I don't want to think about it at all. No, 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 no. That is the antithesis of how we are to be living our lives as Christians in the light of God's word and prophecy in Jesus's promises. For us, as we get into our prophecy update and start today, one of the things that often people are like, okay, so like who's the Antichrist, you know, and all that. And, and we can start to get our focus maybe on the wrong things when we do get into our prophecy updates. Now, part of getting into the book of Thessalonians talks about the Antichrist, et cetera. And so there's information that we have that we want to be clear. We don't want to get caught off guard. We don't want to be deceived. However, our focus, especially today as we get into our passage, isn't so much the Antichrist, but what? Christ. Our focus should be on the return of Jesus Christ, not the rise of the Antichrist. There's a reason we have limited information. We have enough information to walk in wisdom and discernment, but the number one thing, the key thing that we need to be focusing on, our North Star, is the return of Jesus. Amen? All right, so as we get into our section today, I'm going to give you some homework. I don't have time to get into all of it, but the key passage as we begin to look at some of this information, the disciples came to Jesus and they actually asked this question. So when is the kingdom of God going to unfold? Like when is all this stuff going to happen that you've been talking about? And Jesus goes on to a very significant answer, one of those fixed point answers, if you will. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 44, I encourage all of you to read it. Don't just read it, underline it. If as a pastor you've never heard me tell you, you are allowed to mark up your Bible. Do you hear me? All the Bible markers are like, amen, right? Like underline it, highlight, put a question mark by it. If you have something that you're like, I don't know if I understand this. Those are the kind of things that I'd love to keep talking with you about or get in your connect groups about, et cetera. 
But I'm going to focus on a couple of key aspects of this passage today as we get into our fixed point, starting in the very beginning of this topic, because Jesus was making his way. We're moving towards the very end as Jesus is going to be preparing and heading to the cross. And he's talking about, he makes an observation about the temple and the temple being destroyed. And they're like, when is all this going to happen? Here we go. Matthew 24, starting in verse three. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So let me again say step one as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be asking these questions. In fact, as disciples of Jesus, we should be invested, wanting to know, Jesus, when are, when are all these things going to transpire? What, what is it that we should be looking for? As the disciples of Jesus, these guys were listening and watching and observing. And this became like the single most, okay, Lord, what, what, how do we know to be ready? That is a great question for the disciples of Jesus. But notice what in particular they're asking about. They say, and they don't fully understand the whole death and resurrection of Jesus. That hasn't taken place yet. But what they said, what will be the, that when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming. This word, the coming, is a very particular word that we see utilized in the New Testament and even in that time in the world. The idea of the parousia, this Greek word of the coming, the arrival. You know, we just got done with that Christmas season, the advent, if you will. There's a, there's a significance to this term. When we look at the idea of this word, the parousia, the coming, it's used 17 times in the New Testament to describe this idea of the arrival of Jesus. But there's a picture that comes to mind when it's talking about the arrival of Jesus. Now, four of the times it's used here in this passage, Matthew 24. Thus I said, Matthew 24 is a great place to start this discussion. It's also used seven times in what book? First and second Thessalonians. That should get you even more excited as we're getting into the book of Thessalonians. It's used two times in the book of James, three times in 2 Peter, once in 1 John. Of all these times that I'm talking about, it's specifically talking about this event that, that we see Jesus coming. And now you and I, as we look back to the lens of the gospel, we have the benefit of watching this all unfold. Jesus' death and resurrection. But there was an anticipation about a Messiah, one that would overthrow the Roman government, one that would be like a Moses, one that would be like a David. There's a reason this picture is used when they talk about the Periusia. When you think of like Caesar and the idea that these guys would go out and fight their wars and then they would come rolling back into Rome, that idea of a military parade or like Caesar coming and rolling in, that term was called, you're following along with me now, the Periusia. Like it's the entrance, it's kind of grand entrance, if you will, in the, in the movie, The Gladiator, right? Now you guys, again, you're like, these are Caleb's favorite movies. There's a clip in there, I'm gonna show you just for a second, as the emperor is now riding into Rome, just to give you a picture of how this term would have been used in that context.
All right, he's actually the bad guy, so that's not always the best example. But it gives you this idea, right, of like, like here comes the emperor, here comes the military commander, here comes the procession. And so when we begin to wrap our minds around that, remember, that was the anticipation of Messiah. We have Jesus coming in. We just got done with the Christmas season, right, on the donkey. You know, there's these pictures that we have in our mind, but flashing forward, the white horse, the one who's coming to rule and reign, like that's the picture of the Perusia. And when you and I begin to grab hold of what the Bible describes, and as the disciples were asking this question, sometimes we forget that this is what I would call the second half of the gospel. The idea that God himself is coming to rule and reign, to put what was wrong right, that he will physically establish his kingdom here on earth. You remember when Jesus taught them to pray? Thy what? kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven we're praying for longing for Romans says that creation is groaning right like the anticipation we're thinking about it in a political season we've got all these things going on in the world what are we really longing for we're longing for the parousia the return of the king God with us the reunification from Eden, that separation brought back together, right? We're, we're not fully experiencing that yet. We have the veil torn where we have access because of the grace of what Jesus has done. But we don't have that fullness yet. It's either going to happen in heaven or part of what we're waiting for is heaven coming down here. This is the part that we don't always think about as often as we should. And as you and I communicate the gospel, Christianity, us being Christians, isn't just looking in the rearview mirror. Man, that is important. Jesus came, died on a cross, rose again, so you and I can be reconciled with God in terms of like our, uh, our sins being paid for. But when you and I think of... Uh, like I get to do like a premarital counseling, right? And often when I'm sitting down with couples, I say, okay, there's a difference between the wedding and the what? The marriage. The wedding is a what? It's a day. It's a particular event. It's an important event. We're making a covenant between God and men. But the marriage is a what? It's a lifetime. And when you and I get saved, it's like the wedding, right? There's a moment. There's a, a commitment. I am acknowledging my relationship with Jesus, but it doesn't end there. Right? There is this whole fullness of what God is unfolding in what you and I would think of like the marriage. And as we begin to look at the idea of the gospel, we understand that the second half of the gospel is the present bodily return of Jesus. It's not just the people on the side of the, the freeway were holding up signs like he's coming back. It's not just like those crazy people out there. We should all be living with the same light, anticipation, excitement. This is what drove the early church as you begin to get in the gospels, the book of Acts, etc. Notice as Peter is talking about this particular idea of the coming of the Lord. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Uh-oh. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The idea that Jesus is returning, coming back should impact the way we live our lives today this idea of a present hope Jesus returning purifies the same way it does when I leave my kids at home and I say what I'll be back no right like this idea that they know you're returning 
adds a little level of accountability. And it's like, okay, we don't know when they're going to be back. So we have to make sure that like we're staying on track. There's the same idea that this present hope, this idea that Jesus is going to return impacts how we live what? Today, right now. Peter goes on to say, we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Peter was very aware of this promise of Jesus. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. These promises are from Jesus himself. And so Peter's telling us in his epistle that part of our practical job as Christians, it'll impact how we live, but we have a role to play in this idea of the return of the Lord. It says that we should be looking for and hastening. These are action words. Like this actually compels us. And when we begin to ask the question, how do we as Christians hasten the return of the Lord? Well, there's a couple of practical things. Notice Jesus, when he was laying out this case for his return, he said in Matthew 24, 14, you've heard me say this many times, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and what? And then the end will come. The word there isn't necessarily talking just about geography and boundaries, talking about ethnos, peoples, languages, groups. And so this idea that the gospel going out to the end of the world is one of the prerequisites for the return of Jesus. This is why we, as a church, are involved in global missions. What we do in Pakistan, India, is literally right there, you know, reaching one of the most unreached people groups on earth. We have some other people who are doing Bible translation in one of the most unreached tribes, and they're currently working in that particular, I can't even say their names on air, lest they become put in a vulnerable spot. Our church is investing in them. We have a missionary sitting in our church today. Like, this is something that we need to be involved, engaged with, but not just on the end of the world, but every time you talk to a neighbor, a friend, we're getting one step what? Closer. This idea of hastening. Here's the way that Jesus, when he got done explaining a lot of these signs, this is one of the parables that he gave as he was encouraging them to action. Verse 45 of Matthew 24, who then is a faithful and wise servant? Do you want to be faithful and wise? Yeah? Pay attention, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus lays out this example about someone, a master who leaves and he's putting all his resources in charge of the servants. He doesn't tell them exactly when he'll be back. And he kind of lays out one who's being responsible and the other he calls a hypocrite. He was acting one way, but he really wasn't a faithful servant. And the idea is like, what was he doing while he was gone? What was he doing in preparation, anticipation, expectation for his return. And this is part of the, 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 the encouragement to the disciples in preparing for the return, the periousia of Jesus. Now, we're asking the same question. Lord, what do we, how do we hasten? How do we prepare? A couple of practical things as we continue to get in for this idea of the return of Jesus. Number one, what's one of the first practical, simple things that you and I can do to hasten, prepare for Jesus's return? You can invite someone to church. 
Super simple, right? I'm, I'm just inviting you, come join me on a Sunday. And, and when we think about the, the ease, the simplicity of just saying, hey, come join us at 10 o'clock, come join us at 1230. That idea, that's part of the reason we want to be faithfully preaching and teaching God's word and communicating the gospel every single Sunday. So that if you bring a friend or a family member who comes for the very first time, we want to make it our goal, our aim to point them to who? To Jesus as the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of their heart. Number two, you can also share a chapter of what? Your Jesus story, right where you're at. Your job, your work, your friend, that little bit of your story, whatever you're going through, growing through in your life, whatever that chapter that might be appropriate, you sharing your story, you being transparent. That is a way for you to help hasten the return of the Lord. And lastly, share the what? Share the gospel. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them what Jesus has done. Tell them that Jesus is coming back. You and I are already empowered. You've been given the resources, the tools, and even the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness. You're like, Caleb, but how do I do that? Well, number one, we can look right now in the middle of our political climate. And we can see how intense people are about who's going to be elected into office and all the things that are unfolding in the war. And an easy way you say, you know, I can see how important all these current events are to you. You know, do you know what one of the most significant events in the future still is? And they're like, what? Right, how do I take where that person is right now and look at it as a bridge to connect them to who? To Jesus. Maybe there's someone who's super overwhelmed about this stuff in the world. And I can use that to say, hey, I know all this global unrest, wars, all that kind of stuff, man, it keeps you up at night. You know, it's my anchor. You know, it's getting me through when I think about that. And you look at it as a bridge to say, how do I point them to Jesus? Maybe you just asked someone, I did this last time we were sharing the gospel there at Cal State Fullerton, like just in the middle of all the global events. Hey, do you think that in the middle of all this stuff, like we're living in the end times, people talk about like Armageddon, that kind of stuff. And they're like, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, like it's just a simple bridge to a question. Ask them a question that leads you to an opportunity to talk about who? Jesus. Like as we practically begin to think about this, guys, this is part do we believe that Jesus is coming back? If we do, what are we doing about it? Amen? Now, when we think about the idea of Jesus's return, this is the culmination of prophecy. Let me lead you, read you this quote here from John MacArthur. It says, prophecy occupies one-fifth of scripture. Ooh, let's go back here. I'm, it's going slow today. And of that one-fifth, one-third of that focuses on the second coming. There are over 650 general prophecies in scripture of which half of them concern Christ. And out of the 330 or so that concern Christ, 225 of those point to his second coming. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 speak of his first coming. 36 speak of his second coming. There are over 1,500 passages of scripture that refer to the second coming. One out of every 25 verses in the Bible. For each time the Bible mentions the first coming of the Messiah, it mentions his second coming eight times. For each time the Bible mentions the atonement, it mentions his second coming two times. Jesus referred to his return 21 times and over 50 times in the New Testament, we are told to be ready for his return. What do you think, based on looking at those observations, the Bible is telling us about the return of Jesus? It is important. It is the culminating moment of history where we watch that prophecy that we looked at in the book of Genesis with the heel of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, God reclaiming, God restoring. 
So as we begin to look at this idea of the return of Jesus, a couple things practically we need to know about. The Bible says this is not an area we should be ignorant of. As we dig deeper into the book of 1 Thessalonians, this idea of like people dying and what happens after they die and missing the, the, the return of Jesus, this was one of the questions that Thessalonians had. People like, man, you missed Jesus coming back. Sorry, I don't know what to tell you. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. That's not what happened. We're not going to miss it. And as he begins to, to encourage him, he says, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant about those that have fallen asleep. As if like we are grieving like these people that have no hope. Our hope in the return of Jesus, as we begin to look and understand more about what that's gonna look like, you're not gonna miss it. The world isn't going to miss it. Let me say this again as we get back to our aspect of fixed points. The return of Jesus is the North Star that we should point the compass of our lives to. Let me say that again. The return of Jesus is the North Star that we should point the compass of our lives to. Everything that you're planning right now, everything that you're dreaming, everything that you're aligning over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years should be lined up with what we know about the return of Jesus. As we begin to ask the questions, okay, all right, that's my North Star, the return of Jesus. As we begin to look at the timeline of prophecy, et cetera, what are some of the other things that we know without a shadow of a doubt, this is a fixed point that I also can begin to say, all right, what do I know about these things? Well, number one, Jesus is coming back in bodily form to rule and reign here on earth. And when he does, there's a few other things that the Bible teaches us about. The millennium, some of you guys hear the millennial kingdom. Some of you guys have heard the terms premillennial, uh, postmillennial, et cetera. It's talking about this idea of a millennial thousand year rule of Jesus. And then ultimately the culmination of all of this, the idea of a new heavens and new earth, eternity with God, like that's what's at stake. That's what we're actually talking about. As I mentioned before, like math, right? We have the order of operations. And this is where people get, you guys all get this stuff like on Facebook or whatever. It's like a math problem. And it's always trying to test you to see if you remembered like which one goes first. And again, I think when we get into scripture, some people get confused. They get overwhelmed when we begin looking at, all right, what's the order of these events? What do I know? And then, like I said at the beginning, don't let what you don't know get in the way of what? What you do know, the Bible is very clear about some of these things. The book of Revelation, Revelation just means what? Unveiling. And so the book of Revelation helps us see Jesus for who he is, for who he promises he will be, the one who is returning, coming back. In the Bible, the book of Revelation helps unveil some of that information. Let's fast forward to the end of the book, starting in Revelation 19. It says, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Who's it speaking of? It's talking about Jesus, a little different picture than we just saw in terms of a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now we see him coming, this one riding, as it will, on a white horse coming to set up his kingdom, which is a little different picture than we saw, you know, there at the beginning of Christmas. And one of the questions that we can begin to ask is not just who is coming, but when is he coming? Now, the Bible does give us some information when it comes to this idea of the return of Jesus, which is why the next part of the chapter begins to talk about those that are awaiting his return. If you will, like what we would see with the battle of Armageddon, the book of Daniel gives us some interesting anchors in terms of timelines. And you can go back to our study in the book of Daniel online. We did a Thursday night study through this. 
But the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is one of those key prophecies that help give us some, some indicators, some ways in which to set our clock. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. This is where you get the idea of the 69 weeks. 62 plus seven is 69. So, and when it says weeks, it's just talking about sevens, all right? So 69 times seven gives us something that we could calculate. This is why when Jesus came riding in on the donkey, and he's like, man, even the rocks would cry out. They should have known the time. From the going forth to the rebuilding of the walls, that's the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. And so when we see that command to rebuild the walls, and we can look at that date, and then can get in to start the clock, and it takes us through the rest of the prophecy, because notice as we get into the next verse, what happens? And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. That idea of Jesus' death and resurrection culminates in that part of the prophecy, and then it's like it hit pause. And we have one seven left, because there's 70 weeks that are declared for his people. And so that last seven is what we look at is when we talk about this idea of the seven years of tribulation. And it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointing will be put to death and will have nothing. The people, the ruler who will to come, talking about the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And the desolations have been decreed. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the end, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out to him. This idea of a seven year tribulation, this is part of where it comes from. And this idea that someone's going to come and he's going to enter into a treaty. He's going to look like he's coming to offer what? Peace. And it says in three and a half years, in the middle of that, he's going to break that covenant. And from that moment... The countdown begins, 1,260 days, three and a half years. From that moment of what we call the abomination of desolation, Jesus refers back to it in Matthew 24, 15. When you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet, who? So when Jesus gives you the stamp, when Jesus is looking back and validating, hey, what we said through Daniel, pay attention. And so there's going to come a leader and it's going to look like he is the Messiah. We're going to be getting into more of this next week when we look at the Antichrist and continue kind of working uh, into how close we are with that. But this idea that halfway through that seven years, he's going to enter in an agreement. Then he's going to set himself up to be worshiped, the abomination of desolation. And when the countdown begins and you can start to count down from the three and a half years, 1260 days, what happens? And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it, he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron as he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Who does it have with him in verse 14? Us. So as Jesus comes riding in the Periusia, the one riding the white horse, the one who is coming to overthrow the Antichrist and the beast in his kingdom, it says, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horse. I don't know if we all get our own white horse, but the, act, the idea that we get to ride in with Jesus, this picture in my mind that's always stuck out to me, right? 
Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, that's that scene in Helm's Deep, right? When it's like on the third day, look to the east. Then Tolkien has multiple Jesus characters in there. Gandalf's not the only one. But in that moment, it's kind of this picture, right? Because they look up and there's Gandalf. All right, I got the video. I just have to show it, right? Stands alone. Not alone. Rohirrim! Eomer. Through the king! You guys have to watch the movie. But it's a great picture because at that moment, it just seems like all hope is lost. The battle is, is gone. And then there at that moment, as they look up, here comes the rider on the white horse. And this is part of what we don't want to lose focus. And the book of Revelation is overwhelming. We look at the judgment, the wrath of God as the world is getting what it's reaped, what it's sown, and the rule of the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet, all that is unfolding. And then comes that moment, the return of Jesus, the one on the white horse. And we begin to watch the Perusia. This is what the return of Jesus is all about. The world is looking to different leaders and different politics, etc. This is what I'm looking for as far as the one who will set it all right. It says, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Guys, this will be unlike any time. It, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the return of the son of man. The idea of that whole unleashing of this demonic kingdom and as dark and difficult as it seems, the rider comes in on the white horse and what do we see? That the beast and the false prophet, well, God wins. As overwhelming as the kingdom of darkness looks right now, as challenging as we think you know, our current circumstances are, as we get closer to the end, it's going to be even worse. But you know what I love about the book of Revelation? God is in what? There's no chaos. Revelation actually pauses at times, and it just focuses on the worship in heaven. 
God's in no rush. There's nobody like running around like, God, you gotta do, you know, like there's prayer, there's order, there's control, there's timing. All of this stuff, as we're in the middle of our own chaos that's unfolding right now, we look to the end of the book, our fixed points. Remember looking at the stars and we're navigating all these stormy waters? This is what keeps us on course, right? He's going to defeat the kingdom of the beast and the false prophet and all the lies. That are said. I'm going to get into more of that next week as you like, what does that all look like? But this is what I want you to know this week. As we continue, we see that when he returns, the bodily return of Jesus, the one on the white horse, he is coming to set up his what? Kingdom. He is the king returning. That's what the millennial kingdom is all about. It says, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Till what? Till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's a topic for another day. But imagine Jesus returning and setting up his kingdom for a thousand years. I think it's interesting from the time of David to the time of Jesus, it's about what? A thousand years. And that picture of like what it was like to have a man on the throne and we see the dysfunction and all that broken cycle. It's like what they were hoping for was never gonna culminate in David or Solomon or any of the rest of them. But the world will finally see what happens when the true king is what? Is on the throne. Imagine Jesus ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Imagine the other kingdoms of the world coming and honoring and worshiping. Guys, this is not a parable. This is not an allegory. This is real. This is what we're actually awaiting. This is the return. This is the anticipation. This is the expectation. And when he comes and he rules and reigns on his throne and he binds up Satan, we get a thousand years of what it's supposed to look like when God is ruling and reigning for his people. Now notice, when the thousands of year, thousand years is over, history's not done, there's still gonna be one more moment because for a thousand years, God has always been about giving people a what? A choice. And so after the thousand years, the devil's unleashed again and the world's going to have an opportunity to say, which king will you serve? And notice it says, when the thousand years is over, Satan will be released from prison. He will go out and deceive the nations, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Where is he going to be ruling from? Jerusalem. Come back to that another day. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Guys, these are our fixed points. The idea that he rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years. No earthly king is ever going to do what Jesus will do. There is no peace until we have the prince of peace. And then when he comes... And we looked at, again, man's hearts. There's going to be people that, having seen what Jesus does and seen the deception of the enemy, are still going to choose the enemy. But ultimately, when we get to the end of the book, what? God wins. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, all cast into the lake of fire forever. That is their ultimate end. Justice. I know some of you guys look at the things in the world, your heart is grieved. You look back, how could God? Why would God? I understand, but you don't, I don't look through the same lenses that God does. But it should give us hope to know at the end of the book, what? Justice. 
they will meet an eternal punishment equal to all the destruction and deception that they have wrought. The devil will be punished. And so will the beast and the false prophet, that all whole unholy trinity will meet an eternal punishment. Amen? You gotta know that. It's one of our anchors for navigating a dark and difficult world. Couple final things that you still need to have on your timeline. The great white throne judgment. So we see the rider on the white horse, the Perusia. We see the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign. We see ultimately then Jesus cast Satan and all these guys into the lake of fire. And then the great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. This idea of the Lamb's book of life is mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Seven times in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a good place for us to understand that. What is one of the verses that it talks about? In Revelation 21, verse 27, there shall be by no means any that enter into anything that defiles or causes abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What we were talking about in that eternal kingdom. And so notice this idea of where my name is written. That idea of being written in the Lamb's book of life. When we look in the book of Philippians, Paul talking here in chapter four, verse three, he says, I urge you, True companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow's workers who what? Whose names are in the book of life. This is the book you and I want our names in. Just as it talks about this, this roll call for spending eternity with Jesus, Paul talks about this idea of those other fellow believers, their names were what? written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I encourage you, do a study on this. You'll find some pretty fascinating, powerful observations about having your name in there. There's some scary exhortations about your name being in there. But ultimately, what ends up today being the question is, is my name written there? Like of all the places that people want their name, Hollywood, Walk of Fame, whatever, whatever thing that people think today they want their name in. Guys, this, we're talking about fixed points. This is a fixed point. Imagine knowing this today. If you knew your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what could you face next year? If you were facing cancer, if you were facing great tribulation, if you were facing whatever scariest thing, you know, could be thrown at you this side of heaven, if you knew your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, how would that change how you handle it? And for those of us that are looking forward to seeing our loved ones again, and we know their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, how does that anchor your heart right now? You tracking with me? As the book goes on to finish, new heavens, new earth, Revelation chapter 21 describes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he would dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and they will be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, 
For those words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Guys, this is what our Christianity is all about. Some of us sometimes get stuck just thinking Christianity is just about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. That is one of the most significant events in all of history, God becoming one of us to save all of us. But that's the, that's the wedding. That's the moment in which you and I are responding to what Jesus has done for us. This is the marriage. This is eternity with God. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the rest of these promises. Am I living in the light of these promises? New heavens, new earth, all the stuff where people are worried about, you know, climate change and all the rest of the stuff. I get it. But you know how God is going to deal with that? New heavens and new earth. Like that longing in people's heart is really an echo of this promise. That's what you and I need to know. I don't got time. I'm already over time. But I put it in the I put it in the app. I know, but I don't got time. Sorry. You guys are like, play it. You're like, we're already late. So I'll close with this. There's this is one of my favorite ones. This gets me pumped up. Because you and I should be, guys, I love living in America. I understand the republic and the democracy and all of that. And I'll be involved in voting and we should all be engaged in that. But my hope isn't rooted in whoever's gonna be in the White House. My hope is on the one who sits on the throne, who is coming back. That's my king. Let me show you this clip as it kind of winds us up for the end. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? <laughs>
So the world know that about us. That's the one we're waiting for. That's what this is all about. It's what church, that's what our lives, that's what the gospel is all about. Next week, we're going to continue. We're working backwards closer to us. Our North Star, the return of Jesus, that is our fixed point that we're working from. All the rest of the gospel the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and new earth are going to fold before that. But guys, let me say this. Before that happens, it's going to get worse. And when we look and we see what the idea of the great tribulation, the antichrist, the apostasy, all of these things that the Bible describes before it happens. And I believe, based on some, some evidence that we see in prophecy, Israel becoming a nation, all the things that we're seeing in the world are happening, we might be the generation that's preparing for all this stuff that's to come. Are we ready? What are we doing about it? This is what I'm hoping begins to fuel our hearts and all that God is going to be doing in and through our church and in and through our lives. Amen?